Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 438 of Writers Aloud. In Poetry Break, Emily Berry and Julia Copus discuss the often overlooked poetry of Wuthering Heights author Emily Bronte, focusing on I'll Come When Thou Art Saddest. This is Poetry Break for the Royal Literary Fund. I'm Julia Copus, and with me today to talk about one of her favourite poems is the poet, editor and, in her own words, occasional prose writer, Emily Berry. Emily is the author of three collections of poetry, all published by Faber and Faber. Her first, Dear Boy, appeared in 2013 and won the Forward Prize for Best First Collection and the Hawthornden Prize. It was followed in 2017 by Stranger Baby, which explores the loss of the poet's mother in childhood and has been adapted for the stage and translated into Swedish by Jenny Tunedal as Picnic Blixt. Her third collection, Unexhausted Time, appeared in 2022 and is a Poetry Book Society choice. Emily has a PhD in Creative and Critical Writing from the University of East Anglia, as well as MAs in English Literature from Leeds University and in Creative and Life Writing from Goldsmiths. She was, for six years between 2016 and 2022, editor of the Poetry Review, the UK's leading poetry journal. In addition to her poetry, she writes sleep casts, or bedtime stories, for the meditation app Headspace. She lives in London, where she was born. So, Emily, welcome. Thank you. It is so nice to be speaking with you, and I'm delighted that you've decided to talk about a poem by a poet who seems so rarely to be talked about these days. Could you tell us who that poet is and maybe also why you think she's overlooked, if you have an idea on that? Yeah, um, so the poem is I'll Come When Thou Art Saddest by Emily Bronte. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I think maybe she's obviously super well known for Wuthering Heights. Yeah. And I wonder if that has sort of eclipsed her poetry to a degree. Um because I certainly was not that familiar with her poetry. Well, I can't say I'm particularly familiar with the whole of... I just came across this poem in, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but I think it was in a book by the American poet Susan Howe. Oh, okay. Called My Emily Dickinson, um, which is a really amazing book. Uh, Very hard to categorise. It's a kind of um, creative exploration of Emily Dickinson. But in the book, she sort of merges Emily's a bit and talks about Emily Bronte at one point and quotes this poem. Um, And I was just really compelled by it when I read it. And I think I copied it down straight away and um, have returned to it often since. And you mentioned Wuthering Heights. And of course, you know, it's right that she should be remembered for that. But um, I think you're probably right that that is what's eclipsed her reputation as a poet. So um, first, I think we should hear it. Yeah. So um, the vocabulary is pretty straightforward, I think. But before we listen, are there any 
unusual or difficult words or phrases that you would like to draw our attention to or anything that you'd like us to listen out for in particular? Um, I don't think there's any, uh, the language is all very straightforward, so I don't think there's anything that needs explaining. Yeah, no, I would just say just listen and, and feel and see what, see what you feel listening. Yeah. Uh, the only one that occurred to me was that it might be worth commenting on awful in the second line of the last stanza, uh, line 12. Okay, yeah, as in it's contemporary meaning versus... Yeah. So I suppose she would be meaning kind of awe-inspiring, sort of yeah. awesome, the sublime kind of stuff rather than terrible as we would exactly mean it now. yeah yeah so listeners might want to bear that in mind as we hear it um okay well it would be great if you could read the poem for us i'll come when thou art saddest by emily bronte i'll come when thou art saddest laid alone in the darkened room when the mad day's mirth has vanished and the smile of joy is banished from evening's chilly gloom. I'll come when the heart's real feeling has entire unbiased sway, and my influence o'er thee stealing, grief deepening, joy congealing, shall bear thy soul away. Listen, tis just the hour, the awful time for thee, Dost thou not feel upon thy soul a flood of strange sensations roll, forerunners of a sterner power, heralds of me? That's wonderful, isn't it? Um, so, very general question to start with. What would you say the general mood of this poem is, or, or moods plural, if you if you had to name them? Um, <laughs> well, it's funny that you say... To name them because for me the poem is I guess about a kind of existential dread sort of nameless dread <laughs> um, so the mood is pretty dark and bleak I mean it does feel awful in the contemporary mm -hmm. parlance and I suppose when they used the word they were also thinking of things that were very frightening mm -hmm, mm -hmm. As, as well as sort of um, or inspiring or yeah yeah, like the sublime sort of associated with things that are so huge that you can't really comprehend them, like awe-inspiring sights or acts mm -hmm. of nature. So, yeah, so I guess it's the speaker, which is the sort of personification for me of this nameless dread, um, is kind of saying to you in the poem, you're being kind of overawed by me. Yeah. So I don't know if that's exactly answering your question about moods, um, but the mood is bleak. That, yeah, I, would say. No, I think that's a brilliant answer. And I was going to say that to me, this poem and how we interpret it hinges around the question of identity. So you've already hinted at who you think the I or the speaker of the poem might be. But whoever or whatever it is, it does promise to bring the thou of the poem um, great comfort, doesn't it? Does it? Comfort? Yeah, I'll come when thou art saddest. <laughs> oh, so yeah, that, it probably, that speaks to our different dispositions maybe because I very much read it as that 
this phenomenon will emerge just at the sort of worst possible moment, making things even worse. Ah. <laughs> okay, now I may have been slightly influenced as well by um, one of my favourite poems, a poem that I go back to again and again, is The Glass Essay by um, Anne Carson. And, um, oh, yeah, I love that poem. Yeah, and she mentions this particular poem in there. Um, and she says, let me just find it. Uh, I've got it ready here. It's in, it's in the section that she calls Thou. Um, and it's page 39 in, in my copy that I have here, if anyone happens to have that book. She says, um, the thou in Emily Bronte's poems is usually a kind of saviour figure or higher power. So I suppose almost like a god substitute. But in this particular poem, she points out that that Bronte, quotes, reverses the roles, speaking not as the victim, but to the victim. So this still goes along with what you're saying. But that's so interesting that then from that I took what they are doing, what the speaker is doing is is promising some kind of comfort to the thou. Almost if Emily is trying to offer herself comfort because her life wasn't filled with a huge amount of comfort, was it? No. From the little that we know. Well, I guess, um, yeah, you could definitely see it that she's empowering herself in the sense of as the writer speaking from the the voice of the the tyrant mm, as it mm. were but to me the the tyrant the i in the poem is promising some quite uh, unhappy things um as in grief deepening joy congealing and then he's going well i say he we don't know <laughs> if this <laughs> i feel it's a he shall bear thy soul away. I mean, that doesn't seem a very comforting No, but this is so interesting. So I read that second stanza as all coming from the first phrase, I will come. So I'm going to like come and rescue you. You know, it doesn't say that. It just says I'll come. I'll come when the heart's real feeling has entire unbiased way. I'll come when grief is deepening, joy congealing and I shall bear thy soul away um, to somewhere. So if we had to say that I was a personification of something, you know, we could say that it was death, perhaps. Mm. Uh, I read an essay on the Poetry Foundation website that suggested that the I could be uh, the imagination so when you're at your very saddest, I will come and bear thy soul away to somewhere that the imagination can take you that is more more pleasant. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, that's interesting to think of it as the imagination. I mean, I guess to me, I'd find it quite hard to let go of the impression that there's something quite disturbing happening, especially with the final stanza, this talk of, a flood of strange sensations, forerunners of a sterner power. So the sterner power is whoever this phenomenon is. Mm. And these sensations are like heralding their arrival. Um, yeah, I still see that that could be the imagination. So sterner as in I have more power than the grief that you're experiencing. And 
does thou not feel upon thy soul a flood of strange sensations? Well, I mean, that does happen when the imagination takes over. And yeah. and I suppose as well, going back to that word awful, because it has, you know, almost opposite meanings, if we read it as a time full of wonder, it's like, isn't this great? Does thou not feel upon thy soul a flood of strange, not necessarily unpleasant, uh, sensations roll? Um yeah, that's really interesting. It's just making me think of, um, so because for me, I guess I, I've really sort of identified with what I imagine is the experience in this poem of like being overtaken by a sort of mm. unbearable feeling. But of course, that's like my sort of biased relating thing, which isn't necessarily the best way to read poetry. Well, well and, and ditto. <laughs> it just made me think of the kind of contemporary idea or I don't know what you'd call it, but like uh, with experiences of anxiety, mm -hmm. for example, um, it's said that the physical sensation of anxiety is very similar to the physical sensation of excitement. Mm. And it's just about how you interpret it in your mind and that, you know, in CBT or whatever, if you were able to say to yourself, oh, that's just excitement mm. then. <laughs> you could um, feel calmer so that kind of seems like similar to what you're saying is this is it wonderful is mm, it mm. terrible fearful um and maybe that's a kind of key to the poem in that it is yes. really ambiguous yeah yeah um, and those kind of feelings I guess are somewhere in the middle like depending on how you make use of yeah them. possibly that ambiguity was a intended and b gives the poem a, a, an even greater power. Um, I'm just thinking maybe this is a time at which we should bring in a little bit of context about uh, Emily's own life, because it's quite a hard mm. life to reach into because we only get these oblique glimpses of it, mainly via her big sister Charlotte Bronte's um, introduction to Wuthering Heights which sometimes reads as a kind of excuse for the the strangeness of the of the book um and the savagery yeah. of it uh and then there's also Elizabeth Gaskell's biography of Charlotte so we know that Emily Bronte was the fifth of six children um she was born in the summer of 1818 in the parsonage at Thornton in Yorkshire uh to the reverend Patrick Bronte and Maria Branwell. So that surname Branwell was given to her brother, um, whose first name was Branwell. So what do we know about her surroundings and the kind of landscape around the parsonage where they lived? Yeah, I mean, she lived in a very sort of wild, rugged landscape that she was very attached to, um, was quite reclusive and just... A mysterious yeah. character um and then of course the family had sort of terrible tragedies so that emily and charlotte and anne and branwell had all lost they'd lost their mother and two older sisters before they were even 10 um so <laughs> there's certainly good. kind yeah. of reasons why she might be writing poems that are less mm -hmm. than cheerful um but equally why she might be writing poems that are attempting to kind of take power over the uh, uncontrollable mm. forces of life and find comfort. Mm, mm. So the word that you mentioned there um, to describe her character, reclusive, um, is, is a brilliant word, I think. 
I mean, again, a lot of this comes from Charlotte's uh, description of her. But um, do you think she was, I mean, she was certainly isolated. Do you think she was lonely as well? Or do you think the landscape in some way sort of compensated for those feelings of loneliness? Um, I mean, it would be impossible to say, but I mean, all humans experience loneliness, I would imagine. I mean, regardless of whether you're from a big Mm. family or a sociable person or whatever, the sort of interior loneliness is present at times. Um, And this poem to me definitely speaks of someone who has experienced loneliness. I mean, laid alone in a darkened room. It's quite a simple image, but yet quite evocative. Yeah, and also, actually, it's the darkened room, which I almost read. I thought it could be the coffin, you know. Mm. I'll I'll come when that saddest laid alone in the darkened room. It's interesting that it's the... um, Yeah. Well, maybe going back to the poem now and thinking about the technical makeup of the, the lines, there's a very definite rhyme scheme, isn't there? Yeah. Um... So it seems to rhyme all the way through A B A A B. So in other words, the um, the first, third, and fourth lines rhyme, and so do the second and the last. So we've got saddest, vanished, banished, uh, and then room and gloom in that first stanza, and then we've got feeling, stealing, congealing. And then swaying away. And then the last stanza, we've got, um, what have we got, Emily? Well, we've got, this has got an extra line. So yeah. we've been uh, flummoxed. So we've got soul and roll, hour and power, thee and me. So there's an extra line rhyming with yeah. um, the scheme changes, basically. It does, it does, which is really interesting, I think. Um, Mr. Google or Mr. Wikipedia uh, calls it, uh, which shows, I think, probably how rare it is, the road not taken form. Wow. <laughs> um, after the Robert Frost poem. Um, so two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both and be one traveller. Long I stood, so wood and stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. So you've got both in growth. So yeah, it's that A, B, A, A, B thing. But I think what you said about it being interrupted in the final stanza is very interesting. Um, Yeah, for me, it kind of adds a bit of discombobulation somehow. Um, This sort of extra line and rhyme um, just kind of emphasises for me the discomfort of what's happening. yeah, and it is literally unsettling. Yeah, because the rhythm is really, it's really lovely to read. Like it kind of rolls off the tongue somehow. Yeah. Um, like the flood of strange sensations that roll. Um, yeah, in the Robert Frost poem, it's four beats all the way through. So two rows diverge in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. Daddy, 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 da. It goes all the way through. This one is all three beats. I'll come when thou art saddest, laid alone in the darkened room, when the mad day's mirth has vanished and the smile of joy is banished from evening's chilly gloom. Mm. But then, like you said, in the last stanza, I love that she starts off like that, 
listen tis just the hour so one two three the awful time for thee and then lengthens into four beats in those lovely lines that you um picked out dost thou not feel upon thy soul a flood of strange sensations roll so they just become longer and kind of lengthen into these four beats um and well i'll ask you what you think it's doing because it actually says strange sensations um and then there's that really short line isn't there at the end yeah i mean i suppose it kind of like orally Mm. hourly i never know how to pronounce that word embodies what it's describing so Mm. it suddenly changes the the number of beats as it's saying dost thou not feel upon thy soul flood of strange sensations roll yeah so forerunners of a sterner power i'd say those three lines four beats um and then this really short line two beats heralds of me so it's really foreshortened but it's interesting it ends on a question mark as well like for me yes the poem is all about and that's sort of informed my reading of it it's about anticipation and that's what i guess I'm someone personally who finds anticipation very difficult. So for many people, it would be considered excitement. But for me, it's always like dread. And in this poem, it's like, you know, don't you feel this, these strange sensations, forerunners. So it's all like what's being described in the poem hasn't actually happened yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and that is picked up in the sort of future tense. I'll come. Uh I will come, and again, I will come. Um, Then I find that change in the last stanza again into the present tense brings us very suddenly into the now with that word, listen, tis just the hour. And it's kind of like, oh my God, it's happening now. Um, And then all those S sounds as well. (laughs) um, Listen, tis just the hour. Dost thou not feel upon thy soul a flood of strange sensations roll? It it sounds like a kind of I don't know if it's urgent, but a, a whispering. Mm. Yeah, what do they call um, it? The susurration. Um, yeah, that's kind of adds to it because you could imagine this sort of um, what do you call that when you've got like a a brush that you play a um, drum or a tambourine with or something? Yeah, that kind of like. Uh, musical I'm just I've got not got the vocabulary for talking about music at all but that kind of sound that sort of ushers in anticipation of something yeah if there isn't a word for it there absolutely (laughs) should be (laughs) um yeah so it'd be nice to finish by talking about the various possibilities as to who the eye of the poem might be if we go back to thinking about that Mm. um we've said it might be death um and i talked about uh, the second line then becomes like a, a kind of coffin um laid alone in the darkened room yeah i just wanted to mention as well briefly that charlotte mew i always try and get charlotte mew into yeah. <laughs> into every conversation uh so she wrote an essay on emily bronte's poems and she says there specifically about death that you know this could almost be the key she says that it brought no terror to this girl who mused habitually upon facts and mysteries more terrible. It was no problem because it was the end of problems. Mm. And 
that kind of makes death both terrifying, as it is for most people, but also a comfort at the same time. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm interested in her saying that this girl was musing on things more terrible all the time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the second stanza where it says, I'll come when the heart's real feeling has entire unbiased sway and what the real feeling is, because it seems to imply that the real feeling is is the sadness. Mm. To you and to me, the real feeling is the opposite of reality, is imagination, is where we go in our own minds, Mm. possibly. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of interested in what, as well as wondering who the I is, what the real feeling is that is so kind Mm. of in charge. Um, And because obviously for me, I was reading it as loneliness or sadness and wondering why that should be more real than say the mad day's mirth even the fact that it's the mad day which sort of seems to devalue it somehow yes Um, and the smile of joy it's not the smiles of joy or it somehow seems to imply that those things are transient and sort of less significant than whatever is happening here like whether it's something positive or negative which maybe are not really appropriate uh, descriptors anyway What's happening here seems to be sort of huge and uh, the more important factor of this life that the you is experiencing or the the. Because if we're asking who is the I, then the question is also who is the the. Yeah, (laughs) or the the thou, thou, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and actually the section in Anne Carson's book is called Thou and she talks about this connection between I and thou, uh, between Emily and this thou figure. Um. So I suppose to end with, my final question would be, do you think we need to pin it down in this way? Or or do you think the ambiguity is part of the power of this poem? Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, it's interesting to sort of consider, but I do think the poet is kind of playing around with something that is sort of nameless. So in a way, to try and name it is beside the point Mm. but at the same time that's inevitable like we always want to try and name the nameless so um yeah yeah but it's kind of demanding to remain nameless really I suppose which does for me lend a a strength that it could be both those things actually the comfort and the the sadness of death I mean especially that it ends on a question mark it's not saying you know the poem is signed off and it's sort of just leaving it open yeah yeah well I think that is a very good note on which to end this part of the podcast Emily thank you so much for talking to me about one of your favorite poems I'll come when thou art saddest by Emily Bronte my pleasure so my Emily Bronte poet my Emily Bronte poet (laughs) (laughs) Uh, is a few lines shorter than the one that you chose. It's 12 lines, in fact. And it is, the night is darkening round me. Um, And I've read that it's sometimes known as spellbound, but I'm not sure if that was Emily's own title or if it was added later Mm. uh, by an editor. Anyway, the vocab is pretty straightforward again. Maybe just a couple of things to listen out for before we hear the poem. Um, I think it's good to be aware of the possible double meaning of of yet 
in line eight, and yet I cannot go. So that last line of the second stanza, the storm is fast descending and yet I cannot go. So I think she means yet as in even so, Mm. but also yet in the more old-fashioned sense of still so and still I cannot go as if however bad things get uh, she still can't leave this place and then maybe the word wastes in line 10 so the second line of the last stanza that's a word that isn't often used today uh, in the sense that I think it's meant in this poem so Wastes beyond, wastes below. So wastes as in large uh, areas of empty land, Mm. like the moors where Emily went uh, walking. And then, I mean, drear, obviously, we've got the word dreary, but I I think it has more of the meaning of bleak or something like that. Mm. So those are the words that I would pick out to listen out for. So the night is darkening round me. The night is darkening round me, the wild winds coldly blow, but a tyrant spell has bound me, and I cannot, cannot go. The giant trees are bending their bare boughs weighed with snow, the storm is fast descending, and yet I cannot go. Clouds beyond clouds above me, wastes beyond wastes below. But nothing drear can move me. I will not, cannot go. Mm. Um, So it turns out that both the poems we've chosen were written in 1837 when Emily Bronte was 19. Um, Wow. Yeah, that really surprised me. And just a complete coincidence. um, Mm. And Wuthering Heights was published 10 years later, uh, not long before her death so I think she died at the age of 30 um yeah so anyway this this poem is simpler in most things in rhyme in meter and structure than the first one that we looked at so we've got these three stanzas of four lines these three quatrains and it just rhymes a b a b all the way through so me blow me go um, etc and again meter wise it's those same three beat lines the night is darkening round me the wild winds coldly blow one two three one two three um, unlike the first poem those three beat lines keep going right through to the end with no variation at all and I think sorry you, you were going to say something there um, you might have heard me thinking, but I was thinking the, the fact that the meter doesn't change is sort of emblematic of what's happening in the poem. Like she's sort of describing this kind of state of intense inertia, it seems like. Yeah. And to me, that lack of variation in terms of those general patterns of sound, like you say, reflects a kind of unbending state of mind. There's no change to the speaker's mood in this particular poem, um, do mm. you think? Yeah, it, def- it just sort of seems like this, I don't know, kind of claustrophobia that if it changes, it's only intensifying. It, um, there's no release because you just got the repeated refrain, I cannot, cannot go. Well, yeah. and then the, the last line is, I will not. So it's almost like, it's not that they are held against their will somehow. They are willfully not 
moving, yeah. whatever that might mean. We don't know if it's sort of a psychological stasis or a kind of physical one. Yeah, um, but either way, they, they don't want to go. Something is keeping them there. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's all in the present tense too. So your poem, um, you know, started with those, I'll do this, I'll do that. And this is all very present, which does give a sense of immediacy, doesn't it? The, the storm is coming down right now. And I think I chose this poem partly because I find that consistency very moving. It seems so close to what we know about Emily Bronte's life that it's hard not to identify the speaker with her. So she is standing there kind of stubbornly almost in all this bleakness uh, with the storm coming in. But at the same time, there's a kind of turn in every single stanza, by which I mean... So each stanza begins with a statement. The night is darkening round me. Um, the giant trees are bending, etc. But then after the statements, we get those turning words. But in line three, and then we get and yet in the final line of the second stanza. Um, and then but again in the penultimate line, the line 11. Um, that sort of introduce some sort of opposition or antithesis to this statement that she's just made. Yeah, it's. Um, I think it's similar to the previous poem in that it, what is being conjured is this is some kind of quite mysterious state that the speaker can't understand and neither can the reader, because even the sort of compar- the description of the storm and the I will not go. Because you're sort of thinking, well, if a storm is coming in, you wouldn't want to go anyway because you would just stay in, hunker down or shelter in place, as the Americans call it. Do they? I didn't yeah, know so you know when we yeah. talked about lockdown, they much more nicely referred to sheltering in place. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would just run. I'd want to get home. In fact, this does happen on our walk sometimes. <laughs> I end up absolutely soaked, so uh, perhaps I'm a bit simple, but they... <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know, for some reason, I imagine this poem taking place in a house and that the storm was happening outside, but of course, that's not what's happening because she talks about the night is darkening round me, the wild winds. Yeah, so I don't know why I thought that. Uh... I think I was still in the world of the other poem, laid alone in the darkened room. <laughs> that's very interesting to me that you imagined it in a house. But I'm going to come back to that, so okay. something to, something to uh, wait for. Um, but it is very strange. Here's this woman in this bleak landscape, and I'm imagining Emily herself on the moors around Haworth. Yeah, and sort she of just, twigs in her hair. and just... <laughs> Yeah, and she just cannot move from it. Then that line that you said about the, the final line, I will not, cannot go. So will as in the sense of refusal, but perhaps mainly... I do not want mm. to go. Um, and I wonder what it is that's keeping her there. What What do you think? I don't know, but I, there's some sort of sense of her as this, well, it's kind of this is mythologising now, but as this sort of wild woman of nature <laughs> who is yeah. just at one with the kind of elements and wants to just be among them, whatever is happening, rather than flee yeah. home. Yeah. 
From the little that I know about Emily Bronte herself, I get this sense of deep, deep, deep connection. I mean, it's there in Wuthering Heights, of course, between herself and the landscape around her um, in a way that, you know, probably most people living today, uh, by no means everybody, but most people don't experience on a daily basis. So, Mm. yeah. And sound-wise, there is a fair bit of alliteration here. So especially W's and B's. So we've got wild winds weighed with uh, wastes twice, wastes beyond wastes. Uh, And then with the B's, we've got bound, bending, bows. Well, bare bows, in fact, uh, beyond and beyond. And loads of O's. Loads of O's too, yeah. The wild winds that coldly blow, the tyrant's bell that's bound, I cannot, cannot go. Yeah. There's bows, snow, storm, yeah. cannot go again, clouds beyond clouds, above, beyond, below, nothing, move, not, cannot go. Yeah, the seas as well. I mean, it's just packed with assonance and consonants. Um, so we've got coldly, cannot, cannot, cannot four times, in fact, um, and then clouds, which is also repeated. So it's really, really tight in that respect, isn't it? Which kind of, I suppose, enacts the the containment uh, mm. that it's it's a, it's a limiting space, although it's also vast at the same time. Clouds beyond clouds, and wastes beyond waste. So yeah, it's it's describing this infinite wild experience but then it's kind of dialing it right down into this contained confined form yeah yeah and i suppose the repetition also reinforces that idea of um stubbornness doesn't it sort of sticking to one's guns Mm. this kind of steely resistance It's, it's almost like she's expecting the reader of the poem to want to get away or to want her to get away from these wild winds and the cold and the coming storms, etc. Mm. Yeah, instead she's standing there kind of in defiance. Mm. Um, but then she does say, a tyrant spell has, has bound, bound me. me. So it's like she's admitting some sort of external force similar to the me in the previous poem. Yeah, yeah so you used the word tyrant when we were talking about that. Yeah, because I was thinking of this poem, actually, because uh, I, I sort of noticed the yeah, yeah, so- link. So that does suggest, doesn't it, some sort of oppression or subjugation or something. And I was thinking about the word tyrant and going back to the glass essay again. Um, Anne Carson quotes an instance of the word tyrant in another of Emily Bronte's poems, which I want to have to find. So she says um, in another of the poems, Unconquered in my soul, the tyrant rules me still. Life bows to my control, but love I cannot kill. So in that instance, the tyrant spell is a type of love, Mm. but maybe not necessarily for a person. You know, it could be that the love is for the landscape itself. um, Yeah. That has this spell over her. Mm. So that aspect of loving the landscape of this connection with it and I said it was quite rare does remind me a little bit of your poem another of my favorite poems Canopy 
where the trees are bending over the speaker in a kind of protective motherly embrace and that's why I found it so fascinating when you said well I initially imagined this inside the house yeah yeah it's funny because when you said oh I was going to ask you about something else later that came to mind and I was like oh I wonder if I'm reading it through the lens of that poem because I hadn't uh-huh. made that connection myself at all until yeah. just now but there, yeah there is a similar description of these kind of wild trees but that is set indoors um yeah and the first line is um the weather was inside is that right um see if I can remember it the weather was inside the branches trembled over the glass as if to apologize and then they thumped and they came in oh yeah thumped amazing well you're gonna have to go and find it because I wondered if you might just read the last stanza for us um, so just the final stanza. Uh, maybe if you go from They Got Inside Us. Okay. They got inside us and made us speak. I said my first word in their language, canopy. I was crying and it felt like I was feeding. Be my mother, I said to the trees, in the language of trees, which can't be transcribed. And they shook their hair back and they bent low with their many arms, and they looked into my eyes as only trees can look into the eyes of a person. They touched me with the rain on their fingers till I was all droplets, till I was a mist, and they said they would. I think that is a brilliant poem, and I find it very, very moving. And I think it's a poem that Emily Bronte would get immediately Uh, it feels to me like a very Bronte-esque connection with the landscape but the landscape as a a compensation or a reparation for loneliness Mm. or if not quite that a substitute for some kind of absence um yeah that's what it means to me as a as a reader anyway yeah Um, I think that's definitely in there but don't you love this kind of um, echoing and interconnection, interweaving of poems through the centuries? Because mm. I'm just wondering whether I read the poem that you chose, I'll Come Without Art Saddest, because I know your poem Canopy quite well, whether I was thinking of the landscape as a much more comforting presence, the eye of the poem, than you yeah. were. But I just, I love that conversation through the ages between poems. I think it's enriching um, of the poems themselves. Yeah, totally. And I just realised, for example, I hadn't read a lot of Emily Bronte's work at the time that I wrote Stranger Baby, which that poem is from. But I had Mm -hmm. read a lot of Anne Carson. And as we've been discussing, Anne Carson has obviously written about Emily Bronte. And, you know, it's possible that I'd absorbed... Emily Bronte through Anne Carson as it were which is this amazing sort of lineage thing that happens in literature I think. Well Emily I just want to thank you for being such a fantastic guest today and for sharing your time and your insights with us thank you so much. Oh thank you for having me it's been really fun. Emily Berry and Emily's latest collection is Unexhausted Time published by Faber. She is also the author of the lyric essay, The Secret Country of Her Mind, about agoraphobia, dreams and the imagination, which appears in the artist's book, Many Nights, by Jackie Kenny.
That was Emily Berry in conversation with Julia Copus. You can find out more about Emily on her website, emilyberry.co.uk. And that concludes episode 438, which was recorded and produced by Julia Copus. Coming up in episode 439, Jeremy Treglone speaks with Anne Morgan about choosing biographical subjects, the fallibility of memory, trying to tell real-life stories fairly, and the experience of being a critic as well as an author. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.